0: For a reason. You remember in the late 70s and early 80s when they did the Star Wars trilogy? And it's sort of a futuristic book of Daniel in a sense. You have uh, an evil empire and the Emperor Darth Vader who's taking over, instead of city states like Nebuchadnezzar's, whole galaxies. And he is opposed by a few faithful who desire to bring the empire back to truth and justice. And then the second film that follows it up is The Empire Strikes Back, where all of the imperial forces under Darth Vader attack those who are standing up for truth. And chapter 3 is Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to the dream in chapter 2. And it really is the emperor striking back. It has been 16 years since chapter 2. It's only been a week for us. But uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, it's been 16 years. There's that much of a time gap between chapters 2 and chapter 3. Remember back to the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with what he heard. Here's Daniel, a little teenager, giving him not only what the dream was, but the interpretation of the dream. He was impressed. He worshipped God. But time is a way of dulling senses. 16 years later, he's not so impressed. He was the head of gold, but he has something different to say in this chapter. The heroes of chapter 3 is not Daniel. In fact, Daniel's name isn't even in the book or in the chapter. Instead, the heroes are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That at least was their Chaldean names, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This is one of the most loved stories of the Bible, though you might not remember the names of the Hebrew children at least it's a favorite story, and you've probably all heard it even in Sunday school. Uh, there was once a preacher who was wanting to give this as an illustration in one of his messages. But he, too, had trouble remembering the name. So he wrote down the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he wrote them down in a card and put them in the inside pocket of his coat so that he could just open it up and refer to it. So during his message, he got to this point and he said, Now you all remember the story of the three Hebrew children, Hart, Schaffner, and Marx." That's the name of the suit company. No doubt three Hebrew children as well, but the wrong set. Daniel is not the only one in Babylon who worshiped God. He had three other friends. It was a foursome who was loyal and devoted to God. In fact, I believe the reason they were able to stay so tightly devoted to the Lord is because they had each other. They had fellowship together. They were able to feed off of each other's devotion to the Lord. Years ago when I lived in Israel on a kibbutz for a period of time, and you might think, oh, Israel, what a spiritual place to live. Far from it. It was very secular these days. And I lived on a kibbutz where volunteers from all over the world came, and they came for the sole purpose of partying. And it was a time of loose living for many, compromise morally, alcohol abuse, and so forth. There was a lot of temptations, being so far from home to lower the standard, but having other Christians with me, for we went as a team to the mission field, enabled us to stay accountable to each other. That's why I think Jesus sent out his disciples not one by one, but two by two. That's why Paul said, I need a team with me. I need Luke. I need Barnabas. I need Demas. Onesiphorus and all the others because it kept him accountable and they stayed in fellowship with each other the chapter opens the first seven verses with a prideful defiance by King Nebuchadnezzar a prideful defiance Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, these are official government guys, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So... The satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together to the dedication of the image of King Nebuchadnezzar, which he had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. You know, do you get the idea that Nebuchadnezzar lived in extremes? You know, he always has an edict, doesn't he? If you don't do this, you're dead. I'll cut your heads off, I'll burn your houses. Now he has a fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is an odd-shaped image, 90 feet tall, by nine feet wide, certainly out of proportion if it's an image of a man. But it was the height, it was the size, it was not the features of the image that was meant to impress. It was meant to be seen for miles around by the peoples who were under his care. It mentions in the first couple verses that it was in the plain of Dura, And for those of you who say, you know, how do we know that the Bible is true archaeologically and historically, as some of you feel like you may need an archaeological backup, the remains have been found six miles southeast of ancient Babylon. They found a huge stone brick platform, 45 feet square, 25 feet high, that archaeologists believe was the platform that held this very image. But back to the image itself. 90 feet tall, solid gold, or at least overlaid with gold. Impressive. But it was the image of a prideful, stubborn, rebellious king. Remember back to the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 2, 16 years back. Remember that he was the head of gold. And then Daniel said, but after you as the head of gold, an inferior kingdom will arise. The chest and arms of silver. And after that, a third inferior kingdom will arise. The stomach and thighs of bronze. And after that, the legs of iron. Nebuchadnezzar is defying that revelation. Nuts to the silver and the bronze and the iron. It's all going to be gold. In other words, my kingdom will remain forever. I've gotten stronger. I'm not going to be taken over by anybody. And I'm going to have this huge statue and make everybody bow down to this image. For the Babylonian kingdom will remain forever. That's what his statement is all about. It's a prideful defiance against God's revelation. I will never fall. I will stand forever. Now, if sources are correct, and this incident is 16 years after chapter 2, we end up at a very important year, 586 B.C., 586 B.C. is important because it was the third time that Nebuchadnezzar surrounded Jerusalem. And in 586 B.C., this very year, was the year when he burned the temple and completely annihilated, as it were, the population of the Jews in Jerusalem. And according to ancient thought, whenever you take over a city or a country or a temple, you are taking over the power of the God that rules there. So here's Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, no doubt. I've gotten stronger. Though Daniel, a Hebrew youth, gives me a dream and its interpretation, I just conquered their God by conquering Jerusalem. I'm in charge. I am not only the head of gold, I'm the statue of gold. And so he's defying the revelation of God. You can follow the downward development of Nebuchadnezzar's heart all the way from chapter 1. Chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is just a pagan king. He doesn't know who God is. He didn't care who God is. But God cares. And so in chapter 2, we see a troubled king who can't sleep, who wrestles with thoughts about what will happen to his kingdom in the future. Daniel comes in, interprets the dream. The king bows before God, saying he's the Lord of lords. He's the king of all the gods of the earth. But in chapter 3, 16 years later, we have an obstinate Defiant king who has hardened his heart against God. He's carried away with his own vanity. Nebuchadnezzar, you might say, has eye trouble—not e-y-e trouble, just eye, eye trouble. He's consumed with himself and self-importance. Now, this isn't going to last long. God, God has ways of dealing with people like this, of deflating people who think they're so high and mighty. I heard about an army colonel who had just newly been promoted to being a colonel. He couldn't wait to sit in his new office with that bigger desk and more important duties and command other people. And So on the day when he got his new office and he swiveled in that big chair behind the desk, all of a sudden there was a knock at the door. It was a private. And the colonel said, Just a minute, I'm on the phone. He quickly grabbed the phone and said, uh, Yes, General, I sure will call the President of the United States. I know him very well. Uh, yes, sir, I won't forget. Because he wanted to think that he was something and he wanted the private to think that. He hung up the phone he said, come on in, what can I do for you, private? And the private said, I've just come to hook your phone up. <laughs> That's called being deflated. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is almost at that point. He's flexing his strong muscles, but again, God has ways of deflating him. Before we move on, though, something I, I think is important We often say things like, just give it time. Time heals all wounds. Time will soften him up. But I have found that often time hardens instead of softens. That the older a person gets, he becomes victim to being set in his ways. He gets hardened, more difficult, less persuaded, less bendable. Oh, give him time. Well, he had 16 years since God spoke to him, and he's only gotten worse, not better. Some of you may remember back to a time when your mother or father used to tell you Bible stories, tuck you in bed at night. You went to Sunday school. Oh, you loved those stories then. Well, what's happened? What's gone wrong? What do you think about them now? Or you remember a time when you accepted Jesus as your Savior. You loved those intimate times of fellowship. As you walked, you talked, you read, you prayed. Is it the same today? Well, I don't have time for that stuff. Could it be that you have replaced God with, well, with you? With yourself? I'm too important for God. God knows I've got stuff to do. I don't have time to spend any more time with him. Well, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have time to listen to God's revelation. He's so consumed with himself, he's replaced God with himself that he does exactly that. He puts an image, and the image is of him. He is so vain, he's having people worship a statue of him. He's the king of kings. He's not just the head of gold, he's the whole kit and caboodle. By the way... Women, men can be very vain as well. I know that you always get pegged for being the vain ones. Oh, she spends so much time in front of the mirror and always doing her hair. Listen, men have that vain streak as well, if not more. In fact, a study was done by putting mirrors outside public buildings, I think in New York or Chicago. They wanted to test on hidden cameras. Just who spends the most time looking in the mirror? They found that men took the cake that men spend more time looking at themselves, of course, you know, maybe pulling up the sleeves a little bit. Yeah, that looks great. Nebuchadnezzar was in love with himself. Idolatry always begins by elevating yourself above God's revelation. That's what humanism is. The day that we live in, this age is not a Christian era. It is a post-Christian America. And the philosophy of today is humanism. It's the elevating of self over God. It is making God in our image instead of having God make us in His. The Humanist Manifesto, let me read an excerpt from it. They said, We believe that traditional dogmatic or authoritarian religions that place revelation, God, ritual, or creed above human needs and experience do disservice to the human species. Promises of immortal salvation or the fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Man always likes to take credit away from God and say, look at how much we have done. Look how important we are. It's not just the secular world. I fear Christian organizations and ministries do this oftentimes. God does a work, and then pretty soon we start putting our names on the names of schools, universities, churches, institutions. Our names on all the literature, and we want people to look to us rather than to God. It can be very dangerous. In verse 6 and 7, the decree is simply that when the Chaldean Philharmonic Orchestra plays, everybody worships. In fact... The word is used 11 times in this chapter. Worship. It's more than just a political overture. It's a spiritual maneuver. It is enforced worship. When you hear the music, everybody will bow down and worship. Enforced worship never works. It never works. True worship has to be spontaneous. It has to be volitional. It has to come from the heart. You've got to want to do it. You can never tell a person, worship! You'll only succeed in bowing their knee, not their spirits. The Roman government tried this. Once a year, they brought the citizens before a bust of Caesar, and they would have a pinch of incense that was required for them to place in the fire, and they would say, Caesar is Lord. It was compulsory. In the beginning days of communism in the Soviet Union, people were forced to do obeisance to Lenin, the founder of communism. The church in the Middle Ages tried to enforce worship, but it never really worked. I've been to churches before. I won't name them. Uh, They're not even in this town, but I I went to a church when I was a young Christian, and I I sat there, and and the pastor said, Okay, everybody stand up. And we stood up, and he said, All right, everybody, right now, lift your hands unto the Lord. This is the Lord's will. Do it. Lift your hands up. And I didn't do it. Because I didn't hear the Lord speak to me. I heard Him speak to me. And so one of the ushers came by and said, Get your hands up. This is the Lord you're worshiping. And then he followed that like, by going, Now everybody speak in tongues. I thought, Uh oh. <laughs> and just at the cue of this guy, people were doing, and instead of something that spontaneously came from the spring of the heart, it was enforced. I admit. I have walked through this building after a service, after a message, and I walk down the center aisle, I make my way back to the foyer, and I hear the song diminishing in volume from the first row all the way back to where if I'm singing as I get to the back, I'm singing a solo, it seems. (laughs) I felt like saying, come on, sing! But I know that it can never be enforced. If it's not from your heart and you do it, it's, it's not really real. It has to be something you decide to do. Now, they talk here in these verses of a burning, fiery furnace, probably a lime kiln, a pit with an opening on top for the smoke, the flames to escape, or perhaps something above the ground with an opening on top and an opening at the bottom where they could put coal and stoke the fire. And they have found this archaeologically also in the digs around Persia you got to picture the scene. The band's out there. All of the officials are milling around. Hundreds, thousands of people are waiting for the music to kick up. And as soon as it kicks up, on cue, they bow before this image. Except for three. Three people are standing there straight as an arrow. Their backs are vertical. They refuse to bow. The prideful defiance of Nebuchadnezzar is now met with persistent devotion of three Hebrews who just stand. Let's read about it. In verse 8, Therefore, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. They're buttering him up. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. I think they said that with glee and with relish. I'll tell you why in a minute. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. The Hebrews traditionally have had a reputation for stubbornly worshiping God alone. They would not bow. They would not break. And and almost every nation that has taken them over, they found that to be true. They just don't give in. Now they're standing up. Everybody's bowed down. Can you hear the crowd? Maybe they're going, quick, hurry up. Get down, man, you're going to die. Probably a little bit upset wondering if they wouldn't die too with them since they're around the same area. But then there are the satraps, the governors, the magistrates who are probably going, all right, I'm glad they're standing up. We have been waiting for 16 years to get to these guys. For you remember back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar set them over the province and all the magistrates in Babylon. Foreigners over the affairs of Babylon. He promoted the foreigners over the locals. And no doubt, they were just waiting for a time to get back. And envy kicks in at this point. Jealousy kicks in. Envy is the jaundice of the soul. And if you are jealous or envious toward your brother or sister, no doubt it's eating you away even now. It's been responsible for so many crimes, even in the Bible. Cain killed Abel, the Bible says, because of jealousy. Saul threw weapons Spears of David out of jealousy. Jesus Christ was crucified out of the jealousy of the Pharisees. And now jealously they report this to the king. In verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar hears about it and gives him a second chance. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the image which I have made good. In other words, I'm going to give you guys a second chance. Is this true? Well, don't answer that question. I'm going to give you another chance When the band kicks in, you fall down. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now listen to this. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? You hear that defiant retort? Who is the God? I know I had a dream 16 years ago. Yeah, he was able to interpret dreams, but he sure wouldn't be able to deliver you from my wrath. Who is the God? He's defying now the vision that he had 16 years back. All right. These three Hebrew youths are faced with an ethical dilemma. They have to make a choice. Will they obey God in being submissive to human government? The Bible tells us we should submit to human government, those who have authority over us. Or will they obey God in refusing to worship any other God except the Lord God? What will they do? The choice is clear. They remembered the Ten Commandments. The book of Exodus says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. They knew that. To bow before an image in worship was repulsive. They're not going to grovel like that. God strictly forbid the use of images in their worship, and they're not going to bow before a pagan god of Babylon. So, listen to their answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If... That is the case. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. It sounds like they're very calm, very collected, very secure in their answer. They're not going, please, please, please. King, we don't even need to negotiate. This is a non-conversation. We're not going to even answer you on this. God's able to deliver us. You ask, who is the God? Our God can deliver us. And He will. P.S. If He doesn't, we're still not going to bow. We refuse to compromise. Now, you might be saying, well, but isn't there another option? Couldn't they somehow rationalize the situation that they're in? Actually, there's a lot of compromises they could have made or thought. Here's a few of them. See if you haven't thought like this in certain situations. They could have said, we can bow quickly. We can do it once. We're not an idolater if we do it once. We'll do it once and repent. Or they could have said, well, we have to bow. We're being forced to do it. We don't want to do it. We're being forced to do it. I'm not responsible for my actions. I'm a product of my environment. It's not my fault. Or maybe their excuse could have been, well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's treated us pretty well. He's given us a lot of food, clothes, positions, money. We owe it to him. We've got to be nice to him. We have to show him our appreciation. So we'll go ahead and bow. Or perhaps they could have thought, well, you know, we're a long ways away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And God predicted that we would be sold into the hands of our enemies and we would worship and serve other gods. Well, here we are. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians. Or they could have thought, Well, you know, if we bow, we will be preserved and will be allowed to maintain that high position of influence in the kingdom. After all, God gave us this position. We're able to influence Babylonians with the kingdom of God and His ethics, His morals, His values and to even help our own people. If we get killed, we won't be in that position of influence. I'm important. Everybody's doing it, so maybe we should do it. Not these guys. Now be honest. We have an incredible unending ability to rationalize when we want something, right? Have you noticed how you rationalize with things like diets, you think, well, if I drink a Diet Coke when I eat the chocolate pie, the Diet Coke will somehow cancel out the calories in that chocolate pie. Well, why drink a Diet Coke when you have a chocolate I mean, drink the full deal. Well, if I break the cookie in pieces and eat little pieces at a time, the breakage of the cookies will cause calorie breakage somehow, and I won't get as large with those. Or how about this one? Licking spoons and knives when you're preparing something doesn't really count. There's no cow reason licking off of the spoon. Not these guys. They stood alone. These three guys were nonconformists. And that's really what I'd like to press to all of us today. Let's be nonconformists. They didn't care about what was politically correct. All right? It was politically correct to bow before this dumb image. Everybody was doing it. They didn't care what other people thought of them. They were willing to die. They were true nonconformists and that's a truth that runs through the whole Bible. God's people often go against the flow. Not with it. They go against the tide and the flow of humanity. It's been said any dead fish can float downstream. Do what everybody else does. It takes a godly non-conformist, to stand up and say, no, I don't care if I'm the laughing stock around here. I don't care if it costs me my job. I don't care if it costs me my position or even my life. I'm not going to do this. This is a non-negotiable King Nebuchadnezzar. Though they didn't know the Scripture in Romans 12, they certainly lived it. Or Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1 that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't be a conformer. Be a transformer. I'm not talking about the little robots your kids play with, but a nonconformist. The Living Bible puts Romans twelve two like this don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. Phillips presses it even further. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now, that's hard to do, isn't it? We are like tiny boats of truth in a sea of humanists and pragmatists all around us. We rub shoulders every day with people who are carried with the tide of their own desires. We're not called to retreat. We're called to float out there and to be lights to them. It's not easy. The temptation is often to compromise because we don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. At these Hebrew youth said, we're not going to bow. It might cost us our life. I'd rather burn now than burn later by bowing to you, God. So go for it. We're not going to answer you. Kill us. They believe that it is better to die with a conviction than to live with a compromise. They had to live with themselves if they were to bow the rest of their lives, knowing that they conformed to this world. Very much like Job, when he was suffering and he was looking to God for his providence and his will and his sovereignty, Job said, though he slay me, even then I will still trust him. Even if this kills me, if my life is gone, even though he slay me, yet I will trust him. There's a story of a man you should know about if you don't already. In the early church in about 156 A.D., there was a man named Polycarp. I know that's a strange name, but he was a good guy. Polycarp was the bishop, the minister of one of the early churches in Smyrna. And Polycarp loved Jesus Christ. He was loyal to Jesus Christ, and the Roman government wanted to kill him. They arrested him outside the city. They brought him in that February morning. And while the official was taking him in for his punishment, the Roman official said, Polycarp, please, recant your position. Deny Christ. Bow once, just once, and your life will be spared. He didn't say a word. He was brought in before an arena filled with laughing people. And the proconsul in charge said to Polycarp, Respect your years, old man. Swear by the genius of Caesar... Revile Christ, and I will release you. Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have served him, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul in anger said, Swear by Caesar, for I have wild beasts, and I will throw you to them. Polycarp said, Call them. Summon the beasts. What a guy! What a commitment. Hey, fine. I have to stand before God after this life. I have all eternity to face God. Bring the beast on. That's a nonconformist. Now, we move now to verse 19 where we have protective deliverance from prideful defiance to persistent devotion. And now God delivers them in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent... And the furnace was exceedingly hot. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the fiery furnace. Now, before we read on, you think, God, this is tragic. Here, these guys trust God. And they get thrown in. But what else is there left for them to do? Once you make the commitment to not conform, once you make the commitment to not bow, hey, I'm at your mercy. Moreover, I'm at God's mercy. Whatever happens, happens. Lord, I just trust you. What else do I have? There was a pilot who was having some trouble with his airplane. He got on his little speaker and he called the tower and he said, pilot to tower, pilot to tower, do you read me? I'm 400 miles from land, 800 feet above the water, and I'm running out of fuel. Please advise. The tower got on the horn. They said, Tower to pilot, tower to pilot, we got you. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What else is there to do? I mean, you know, you're at, you're at your end. You better pray. So they threw them in, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose in haste and spoke saying to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Notice something. They're not trying to get out. In fact, they didn't come out until Nebuchadnezzar calls them out, Get out of there. Until then, they're just walking around, fellowshipping with each other, (laughs) catching up on things maybe lately, fellowshipping with this strange being, the Son of God, or better put, a son of the gods, Bar Elohim. A son of the gods, some deity-like, entity who's walking with them. Of course, we believe, as most do, that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. The same one who appeared to Abraham having a feast in Genesis 18. The same one who walked with Enoch. The same one who stood before Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army. But these guys aren't scrambling to get out. They're walking around, talking to one another. And let's see what happens. Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I don't think he said that in anger. I think it was like, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Boy, has he changed his tune. Come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, And the king's counselors gathered together and saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies. Keep in mind Romans 12, 1. Yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god but their own. Therefore I make a decree. This guy liked to make decrees. you find that out? That any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. And their houses shall be made in ash heap, because there is no other god who can deliver this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. These guys were thrown into the fiery furnace, but they experienced the truth that we so often refer to in Isaiah chapter 43, that scripture that says, When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. Very literally, they experienced that miraculous preservation. Okay. We can view this story historically. We can view this personally and make application. But I believe also we can view this prophetically and real briefly. Just as sort of an appetizer for future things and future studies, we can view it prophetically. You see, Nebuchadnezzar foreshadows another world ruler that the Bible speaks about all over the place. We call him the Antichrist. The book of Revelation calls him the beast. And in Revelation 13, the beast has a sidekick. And the sidekick makes this huge image of the beast and commands the entire world to worship the image of the beast. And to worship the image of the beast, it involves an economic conformity. They take a number on their forehead or right hand, and nobody can buy or sell unless they have a number. A friend told me he was in a store a few weeks ago and standing in line. The person there that was buying in front said, Man, money is such a hassle. Checks, currency, you know, you lose it. It's such a hassle. My friend said, Well, you know, pretty soon they're just going to put numbers in your head, maybe a computer chip or a way to scan it into the computer on your right hand or forehead. The person said, Wouldn't that be wonderful? I'd love that unaware that there will come a beast who has a false prophet who makes an image and commands everybody to have a worldwide worship system that involves economic conformity. And interestingly enough, the name of this system in Revelation 17 is Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, is a foreshadow of this beast or Antichrist to come. Now there's three Hebrew children that are preserved, which I think is very... Typical, It typifies another bunch of Hebrew children that will be preserved, 144,000 of them. From every place on the earth, 12,000 from each tribe of the tribes of Israel. They'll be preserved during the tribulation, miraculously kept. But the question arises still, where is Daniel? Daniel is absent from the whole story. And you could speculate, well, he was probably sick, or he more probably was away on official business, being in a higher position. Though a Jew, he assumed a Gentile uh, demeanor as second in command over Babylon. He was absent. And I would suggest to you that he's not only absent physically, he's absent prophetically. Could he represent another group who will be absent during the fire of the tribulation? As he preserves 144,000, he keeps absent another group the Bible calls the church. For the Bible tells us we are not appointed unto wrath. That is the wrath of God. But back to earth, back to ground level. There's a few lessons I'd like you to walk away with. Just to sum it all up. A few brief lessons. Number one, it's possible to be true to God when everybody around you isn't. It's possible to stay afloat when everybody's drowning in that sea of humanism. It's possible. Secondly, God is able to preserve you from anything He wants to. Now, He doesn't always. Sometimes He didn't want to. Sometimes your number is up and it's time for you to go to heaven. He didn't preserve you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were preserved, but they died eventually. They weren't preserved forever. God is able to protect you until He's finished with your life and ministry. Thirdly and finally, God is always with you in the midst of any fiery furnace. When you're in a trial, the first thing that should come to your mind instead of how can I get out is, where's Jesus? I need to be in fellowship and in contact with Him. That's the only way I'm going to make it through. Because sometimes, you see, God will deliver you from, but often God will deliver you through the trial. But above all, no matter where you find yourself, don't conform, man. Be a nonconformist. That takes a radical commitment and decision to follow the Lord. It's very radical in this society today. You know, merchandisers have found that customers find safety in numbers. So much so that one store owner bought a bunch of used cars and parked them out in front of his business. found that sales went up dramatically because people wanted to stop to find out why are all the people here? And they discovered that we're conditioned to conform. Find out what everybody else is doing and do it. Be a nonconformist. Following Jesus and making a decision to follow him in this society is the most radical nonconforming thing you can be involved in. But I'd rather bow to him and stand here and not bow on this earth because I'm going to have to face him for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this incredible example of three nonconformists, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We marvel, Lord, at their commitment. We marvel, Lord, at the calmness with which they answered Nebuchadnezzar. We don't even need to answer, you king, on this. No negotiation necessary. I pray, Lord, that we would live by those non-negotiable principles, that we would not blur the lines that we would not rationalize. We would just stand our ground because we want to please You. Fill us with Your Spirit, Lord. Only can we do it through Your Spirit abiding and filling us. And Lord, I finally pray for those who are in this service today who are aware of God, like Nebuchadnezzar, but they have not personally submitted themselves to God. In fact, some of them have lived in defiance against His principles. I pray, Lord, that as your Spirit has touched them already through this time of being in your presence, that now you would cause them to surrender completely to you.